Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. Easy to find right there in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel comes right after 1 Samuel. So you can turn there in your Bible or scroll there. Or you can Google yourself there if you want to today. Um, the notes are available for you, by the way, in the, on the back of your bulletin. They're right there, available. They're also available online at unischurch.com slash notes. You can actually fill in some of the blanks along with us, as well as our app, New Hope Church Eunice. You have to type in Eunice. If you just type in New Hope, you may end up in Oahu. There's a New Hope in Oahu. Apparently, I think I missed my calling. God wanted me to go to Oahu. I didn't know it was there. I ended up in Eunice. So eventually, I love you guys, but God's going to send us to the right new hope. Until till then, we're going to be faithful where we are. But you can, <laughs> I only hope that's for real. Um, you, you can download that app uh, available in the app store for you, and, and your notes are right there available for you to follow along. I want to preach a message today, uh, a timely God help me message today, it called Reverence for His Presence. I, I fear, I fear that we live more and more in a day and hour where a lack of reverence for the presence of God is becoming actually not just acceptable, but popular. Reverence for his presence is not just something that society lacks. I believe that reverence for the presence of God is something that is lacking in the people of God. And when the people of God lack reverence for the presence of God, then the people all around the people of God despise the presence of God. Because the people of God do not give a biblical representation of what the presence is actually supposed to be. In fact, here's what I want to say about the message title today. I believe that the right thing done without reverence can lead to very bad consequences. So the right thing without reverence can go very wrong. In fact, you're going to see that in the story today. I, I grew up hearing about Jesus. I grew up learning the stories of God's Word. And I grew up in a way, for me personally, this wasn't on my parents. I don't get to blame my parents or, or my grandparents. I believe people all around me had reverence. But in my, in my mindset, in my mentality, I, and maybe this will relate to some of you. If you didn't hear anything else I said up to this point, let this one sink in. I personally took the presence of God for granted. I personally took the glory of God for granted. I assumed in Scripture, I assumed that there were some things that were okay, that I was, that were acceptable in my life by me, that were not acceptable for the life that God had for me. And so I, because of a lack of reverence, I actually got in my own way of what God wanted to do in and through me. And I found this story in the Old Testament, and I realized that this is not a new thing for God's people. 
that God's people have been walking in a lack of reverence for his presence for a very long time. In fact, whenever his people began to lack reverence for his presence, he would just remove his presence from them, and then they would get to see what it was like to live out of the presence and out of the covering of the Spirit and the glory of an almighty God. And we see this in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant, now I know I told you to turn to 2 Samuel, but I'm setting it up, and I promise I'm not going to preach the whole book. I just wanted to refer back to this story. Somebody's like, great, I brought my friend. He's preaching the whole Old Testament. To... <laughs> back in 1 Samuel, the Israelites, because of a lack of reverence for the presence of God, are defeated by the Philistines. You remember the Philistines, they had this giant named Goliath, Okay. And, and they were overwhelmed after David had actually overcome this giant. The Philistines actually overwhelmed the Israelites, and they took the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, I don't want to assume that you went to Sunday school with me. I don't, don't want to assume today that you know what a flannel board is and or a flannel graph is. I don't want to just assume that you know what I'm talking about today. Um, but, but I learned the stories, and the Ark of the Covenant was the Old Testament representation of the presence of God. Where the Ark of the Covenant was, that is where the presence of God was. And, and God instructed Moses in the book of Exodus to build him a tabernacle and build an outer court and a holy place, an inner court, and then to build a holy of holy place and to house the Ark of the Covenant in the holy of holy place, not just the outer court, not just the inner court, but the interior of the most holy, and there was a curtain or a veil that separated the holy of holies from every other place. And the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. And the Philistines did what America has been doing for the last 200 years. The Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, and they put it in their temple. Like they wrote, in God we trust, as they made up their own walls. They put the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, in the temple of their God, named Dagon. Now, Dagon represents the idols of the Philistines. Dagon represents the desires of the people, the worldly people. And what they did is very similar to what we do today and what America has been doing for the last 200 years is they took the presence of God and mixed him in with their entertainment. They took the presence of God and mixed him in with their athletics. They took the presence of God and mixed him in with the things that were acceptable to them. And the Bible says that when the Philistines put the Ark of the Covenant, this is a cool story, it's in 1 Samuel, you can go read it on your own. I mean, none of you are going to, but if you wanted to, it's, it's there. You know, if the Holy Spirit tells you to read your Bible and you listen, <laughs> it's there for you to read. So they put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple with Dagon, just like we do. We just mix God in with everything else we're already doing. And then we ask God to bless the decisions that we're making instead of asking God what decisions we should be making. Come on, somebody. We, gotta, we serve an after-the-fact God. This is what they did. They put God in with their idols to worship him. The problem is we serve a jealous God. 
And he said, number one, before you do anything else, I am the Lord your God, and you will worship me only. Well, when they tried to worship multiple gods, God took their god, Dagon, which I believe was like a serpent bottom and a, and a, a human upper half. And when the priest came in the next day to the temple, Dagon was laying face down on the floor. Now, I believe this is significant. I don't know this, but I believe it's significant. In other words, God said, I'm not here to be worshipped with everything else you're already worshipping. What you're worshiping now will surrender to me just like you will. I will be worshiped one day, one way. And God took the desires and the entertainment and the idols of the Philistines and caused that idol. This is good news. God caused that idol to bow down and worship him. The thing that was holding the Philistines back from truly experiencing the presence of God was face down on the floor, submitted in worship to the one true God. But the Philistines, like us, Instead of just allowing that thing to stay there, because we've been delivered of things, and we've been set free of things, and we have the authority in the name of Jesus for things that used to cause us confusion and used to bind us to now be bowed down in worship to God. But instead of leaving that addiction on the ground... Instead of leaving that desire, if fully submitted to God and worship face down on the floor, the Philistines did what we do. They went back in and picked it up again. And they picked it back up and they put it back in its place because that's where they wanted it. They put God in his place and their desires in their place. And then they left again and they came back in the next day and God said, I'm not having this. The next day, Dagon wasn't just on the floor, face down. The next day, the Bible says that Dagon was on the ground and his hands were cut off and his head was cut off. <laughs> That's good news. That means when you pick something back up again, it's only a matter of time as long as you don't run out of it before the Spirit of God shows you that it's no longer acceptable to just mix things in with his presence, that the things that are causing you to stumble are about to surrender. Come on, if you got some things causing you to stumble in the house this morning and you want the head to be cut off of that serpent and you want the hands to be removed so they can't operate anymore, then I believe that you serve a God who will do it for you if you will submit it to him. Him. The Philistines didn't get it. They decided to go to church somewhere else because that church was just too emotional. So the Philistines took the presence of God and they moved it to another place. I believe the first place they moved it was Ashdod. And in Ashdod, everybody got sick and people started dying. And the Bible says that they were struck with tumors because of what they were filling themselves with and their lack of reverence for the presence. See, they didn't know how to properly manage the presence of God. And when you don't know how to properly manage the presence of God, what was supposed to be a blessing ends up being a curse. And so they moved it to another place. They thought, well, man, it's not working out here, so I'll just go over here. Well, it's not working out here, so I'll just go over here. Listen, the only person that you can't ever get away from is yourself. It doesn't matter where you move, the presence is going to follow you, and you're still going to have to deal with you. They moved it three times. Finally, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1, the Bible says that they said, we got to send this thing back to Israel. I'm done with this. Isn't it interesting? 
that when God doesn't do what we expected him to do, instead of allowing him to work on us and build us, instead of allowing him to sift and remove things from our lives that don't belong, we return back to what we were comfortable with to begin with. And we allow somebody else to experience what God intended for us. The Philistines sent the presence of God back to the Israelites. And in 2 Samuel, the presence of God housed in the Ark of the Covenant had been sitting in the house. I don't even know if it was in the house. I actually heard one commentator say that it was, it was just out in, in the yard. Like if you just imagine some of these yards, which are, by the way, not supposed to be this way, um, but some of these yards where they just collect stuff, and, and it, they're not doing nothing with it. It's just there. You know, it's just an eyesore to everything. And, and they get ticketed, and they don't care. It gets lost in everything else. And that's what was happening. I think this is what's happening to Abinadab. He was just, he wasn't holding the presence. He was just hoarding it. And the presence of God was probably just out there amongst his stuff like everything else was. I don't think it was in his tent in a special place. I think it was just at his house. That's me. And, and for about 40 years, this is where the Ark of the Covenant, the manifest presence of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just at some dude's house, <laughs> some guy named Abinadab. And David comes in, and, and he's anointed king of Israel. And he says, hey, we need to go get the presence. We need to go get the Ark of the Covenant because the presence of God belongs here. Now, David knew what to do, hear me, but David neglected to remember how God wanted to do it. Remember, I said the right thing without reverence can lead to very bad or can go very wrong. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Well, that was a long intro. Verse 1. The Bible says, David again brought together all the able young men. It just, some versions just say the chosen men of Israel. There was 30,000 of them. Verse 2, he and all his men went to Belah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name. And that's capitalized in my Bible. It's called by the name. I love that. The name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Now, if you've never seen the Ark of the Covenant, we'll just leave that there for a second. If you've never seen this, what it essentially is is a large golden box, okay? It's got a lid, and on top of the lid, there's two cherubim, and they're kind of doing like this. They're covering their head because the glory of God was assumed. Now, you can't see the glory. You can't see the presence. You can sense the glory, but you can't see the glory. You might not even feel the glory, but you can still sense the glory. It was right there, hovering on top, over, the Bible says, it was between, enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Now, underneath the cherubim was a lid, and this was referred to as the mercy seat, okay? And underneath the lid, inside of the ark, were three things. A bowl of the manna that the Israelites had in the wilderness for 40 years as they wandered. Something about that number. Another thing that was inside of the box, many scholars believe that Aaron's staff that budded 
was inside of the box. So two things right there. God wanted the people to remember that he was their provision and it was daily bread that they needed to come to him every day in order to receive what only he had for them. And then he wanted them to remember that I can do things that you can't do if you will continue to come to me and allow me to do it. That was what the staff, I believe, represented was the miracles and the signs and the wonders that God wanted to reveal, not to his people, but through his people. Because the miracles and the gifts, they're not for you. They're for the people that God puts in your path. And you don't get to hoard the presence and the gifts and call it holy. You are just meant to house and share. And then the final thing, often they referred to as the law of Moses. But it wasn't the law of Moses. It was the law of God. It's kind of like when you hear about the book of Acts and it says, this is the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. That's not the book of, that's not the Acts of the Apostles. That book is about the Acts of the Holy Spirit in and through the Apostles. It's God's power and God's glory that built the first church, the early church, and the gospel continued to spread. It wasn't through the people alone. It was through the people by God. Okay, so this is the law of God etched by the hand of Moses because he pitched a fit and broke the ones that God had etched out for him. God ever done something for you? You pitch a fit and then he makes you redo it and it's harder the second time than it would have been the first time? Yeah, Moses too. You're in good company, okay? So these three things were right here in this box. And in order to, to understand the significance of this box, then you need to understand the difference between mercy and judgment. Because when God was enthroned between the cherubim and the cherubim looked down, what they should have seen was the failure and the flaw of mankind. When they looked into the box, they, would, they should have seen that man cannot provide for himself, man cannot perform miracles, and man can't even keep ten simple rules. But every year, the priests were instructed to go into the Holy of Holies, and they were instructed to provide a sin of an atonement sacrifice, and they would slaughter that bull or slaughter that calf, and they would take the blood, and they would throw it over the top of the mercy seat. And so, I love this. I wish I had more time to preach it. And so, when the Father was enthroned, as the Bible says, between the cherubim, and the cherubim looked down upon the lid, instead of looking through and seeing the flaw of man, they saw the blood of Jesus. And instead of seeing the sin of man, they saw the purchase of man. See, every time that God looks at you, when you're in the sun, when you've received salvation, instead of seeing you stuck in the sin, he now sees you standing in the sun. And every time that you plead the blood of Jesus over your friends, and every time that you plead the blood of Jesus over your past, and every time that you plead the blood, I can't get no help, y'all gonna make me hurt myself again today. Every time that you plead the blood of Jesus over your sickness and over your sin and over your failure and over your sorrow, instead of seeing your sickness, sin, failure, and sorrow, God looks down from heaven, enthroned between the cherubim on this day, and he sees the blood of his son, and he says, I call you my own because you've received what I've done. It was enthroned. Verse 3. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have brought my friend in. He's in verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart, underline that, on a new cart. That was nice of them. But that's not what God said. And they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which it never should have been, which was on a hill. 
And Uzzah, I had to look that word up because my southern slang wanted to say Uzzah. <laughs> and I've actually heard it preached that way. And I actually said it online. I was like, that can't be right. As I was saying, I was like, this sounds dumb. It's not the way I Uzzah and Ohio. Not to be confused with, you know, the other place. These two boys were raised in church. They were the sons of Abinadab. They had been around their entire lives. Remember, it had been 40 years that thing had been at Abinadab's house. And so these boys saw the ark as just another thing that they had at their house. Just like many people in the southern Bible belt see the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, we look at what we learn and what we listen to every week, and we just assume, and we just put it in the place of another thing that happens to be in our southern culture. That's what the sons of Abinadab did, because they grew up here in every sermon. They grew up here in every song, and they knew all the stories. And the Bible says they were guiding the new cart. Here's the problem. They weren't supposed to be worried about the way that the presence of God was being ushered. They were supposed to be concerned about whether the presence of God was being ushered. And instead of guarding the ark, they were guiding the cart. So they were distracted from their actual purpose. In other words, they were willing to split churches over their preferences. In other words, they hadn't reached nobody in the last decade, but they still came together and called it holy. They knew how to speak in tongues, but they were evil in English. I can't get no help in this Presbyterian church this morning. I understand. See, what you don't understand is what they didn't understand, that when you just mix the glory of God in with all the other ungodly things that you are already doing, then the God that you're supposed to be serving doesn't lose his power. Everything else just gains power over you. They were God in the cart, verse 4, with the ark of God on it, included in everything else they were doing. And Ohio was walking in front of it like he was, I got the presence, it's back there. Look, you don't walk in front of the presence of God. You either walk in it or you get behind it. Ohio, I believe in his arrogance walking along in front of the cart. Verse 5, David and all Israel celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets. I don't even know what that is. Harps. I actually do now because I said that in first service and somebody Googled it. Harps, lyres, and timbrels, and sistrums. Still don't know what that one is. And cymbals. So, so they're making a lot of noise. Come on, they were Pentecostal. <laughs> charismatic, excited about it. But they were clanging cymbals. And what Paul referred to as resounding gongs. Because they lacked reverence. Verse 6 says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzziah reached out and he took hold of the ark of God. He thought he was just, he, he thought he just deserved it. Uzziah had a sense, of, a, a sense of entitlement. And when you have a sense of entitlement, you don't appreciate. Instead of appreciating, you expect. 
And when expectation exceeds appreciation, then you become entitled. And Uzziah and his entitlement took hold of the ark of God. You know, that thing, he grew up, that was in my house. I, I grew up with this. I've heard this message. I've been in those services. I've sang those songs. Yeah, but you missed the glory. You took, you took the glory for granted, Uzziah. And as he reached out, the Bible says, because the oxen stumbled, verse 7, the Lord's anger burned against Uzziah. I'll tell you what that word anger really means later. Burned against Uzziah because of what? Because of his irreverence. Now, some versions say because of his error. But if you go and look up the original translation of that word, it was because of the inconsideration of his error. In other words, if his head would have been in the game, he wouldn't have made the error. But because he's not really paying attention, he's being inconsiderate. In his inconsideration, he made a great error. I believe that there are things that God wants to do in our lives, but we're insensitive and inconsiderate. And because of our insensitivity and our inconsideration, we make errors where we were supposed to be anointed. The Lord's anger burned against him, and the Bible says, therefore, God struck him down. In other words, he made him dead, and he died right there. Well, you talk about kill a parade. I mean, they are dancing, Pentecost, Holy Ghost fires happening with the ark all mixed into everything else they're already doing. Somebody touches the ark and dies. That party was over. He laid right there. Write this down if you're taking notes. Just write down very simply, no shortcuts. No shortcuts. I have learned just in my short tenure in ministry and in a lifetime of hearing about Jesus and sometimes even serving him, I have learned that there are no shortcuts to the glory of God. There are no shortcuts, hear me, there are no shortcuts to seeking the presence of God. And I believe, hear me, I know this is a little bit heavy, and I could be wrong on this. If you, if you think I'm wrong, go to a, a softer, kinder, more seeker-only kind of, you know, sugar-coating guy, because that's not me. I just believe we have dumbed this thing down to the place where people could believe about it but not believe in it. And we have made living for Jesus sound so simple that it's leaving people sick. I believe that we have dumbed this thing down to the point where you could come in and be entertained and leave just as evil as you were when you first walked in. I believe that we have integrated the anointing into everything so much to the point where you can't even tell the difference between the God-fearing and the fool because we've just mixed him in to our desires and our culture. And when somebody talks about seeking, people don't show up. Kind of like prayer. Now, if I say come to breakfast, because we're feeding everybody on Tuesday, we'll have a full house. But if I say come pray, <laughs> that's a lonely room. 
And I believe that there are no shortcuts to seeking the presence of God. Everybody knows Jeremiah 20. I say a lot of people know Jeremiah 29, 11. And I love it. And I love to preach it. And I like being happy. And I like to be joyous. And I like to inspire and encourage. I just don't like to give people false sense of security for salvation that they're not walking in. And so when I say Jeremiah 29 and 11 says that God knows the plans that he has for you, <laughs> says the Lord. They are plans to prosper you and not for you. They are plans to give you hope and a few. I even want to say them like T.D. Jake. The Lord knows the plans that he has for you, plans to prosper you and not to. I love it. The problem is the next verse. Because the next verse says, and you will seek me and find me if. And if you do a word search on if in Scripture, what that was, you do a word search on if in Scripture, and it will challenge the comfort of your so-called Christianity. Like the time that Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples. And if you continue in my word, then you will know the truth. Doesn't mean you just hear the truth and walk around in freedom. Because we have way too many so-called believers walking out of here just as bound as they came in. Because we forget the if. And we assume that the if applies to everybody but us. I am preaching today. I don't even need your help. <laughs> Isn't it easy to just assume that that if no longer applies? Or the if applies to somebody else? Come on, the Word of God is way easier to preach than practice. And there are no shortcuts to seeking the glory. But thank God, I don't just serve a God that tells me what to do, and I don't just serve a God that tells me how to do it. I serve a God that from the very beginning came up with a plan, and it was a plan of redemption. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, he said that where you couldn't do it, I'm going to come and do it. What you messed up, I'm going to fix up. If you'll just surrender to me, then you will understand what I have already planned and shown in eternity is going to come to pass. I don't serve a God that sits in his high place and looks down upon me. I serve a God that sent his only begotten son to come walk where I walk and tempt as I tempt and fear as I feared and he was tempted in every way but the Bible says he was without sin so when he came in and did it for me now in him I can begin to do things that I could have never done without him so here he is 2nd Samuel chapter 6 verse 3 they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab. See, what they didn't under, they, see, they believed Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. They just forgot about verse 10. For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. Like, they got that part. Not of works, lest any man should boast, but it is a gift of God. Oh, bless the Lord, oh, my soul, and all that is within me. It ain't even on me. Yeah, but verse 10. And you 
are God's masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus. See, before you were in your sin, you weren't created in Christ Jesus, so your works were as filthy rags. But now, now that you've been born again, now that you're being baptized in the Spirit, now that you're being built up by the church, but now we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. But they didn't understand that there are no shortcuts to what God says. They put it on a cart. That wasn't supposed to be the way that it was carried. God had given specific instructions on how to carry this thing. But these people had a nine-mile journey because the Bible says that Abinadab had a house up on a hill. I don't know if you've ever carried a cart down a hill, but it could be dangerous. I don't know if you've ever carried a cart back up a hill. Abinadab lived on a hill, but Jerusalem was up a hill. So they had nine miles down a hill, up a hill. Be like walking through gumbo mud with a cart, carrying the ark. So they, instead of carrying it like they were supposed to be carrying it, they just decided that they would guide as somebody else carried, which is what's wrong with the church. Thank you, God, I done gone there. What's wrong with the church is the people that are supposed to be carrying the ark of God are more worried about how it's being carried. They're more worried about guiding the cart of the presence of God that somebody else is carrying. And so when the pastor that is actually carrying, when the preacher that's carrying, when the staff that's carrying, when the dream team that's carrying, when the people that are carrying, when the leaders that are carrying, Caring and carrying the ark don't do what they were thought that they should have done because they thought that their responsibility was to guard the cart instead of carry the ark. They get mad and go somewhere else and scrutinize how they're carrying the ark. You weren't anointed to guard the cart while somebody else carries the ark. You were anointed and actually instructed to carry the ark along with the person that was carrying it. Not just judge whether they should or was not carrying it the right way. But they didn't understand that. So where did they get this idea to put this thing on a new cart? Well, the Bible says, again, back in 1 Samuel chapter 6. If you want the short version of this sermon, I recorded it online in about 25 minutes. You're getting the 930 version. It's shorter than the 1115, I promise. I feel sorry for them poor people. <laughs> they get everything I done thought of in three different services. <laughs> I know that wasn't proper grammar either. I was trying to make you feel better. First Samuel. First Samuel chapter 6. When the Ark of the Covenant was causing the Philistines to get sick and contract tumors and, 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 and just uh, tearing up their gods and their idols and their entertainment and, and just making them feel real bad about all their social media following. They went to the priest. Not the priest of God, but the priest of men. They went to the Philistine leaders. They didn't go to repent they went to figure out how they could continue to live the way they wanted to live. But not feel so bad about what they were doing. You're going to have to get that at another church. I ain't got time for that. 
Because if somebody would have did that to me, they'd have sent me straight to hell. I'm not doing that to you. I'm trying to do something for you. So they went to their priest, and their priest gave them all these different ideas. Watch what they told them to do. In order to, to move the presence of God, to move the ark, verse 7, the priests say to the people, take and prepare a new cart. These are Philistine priests. Take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, in case you get thirsty on the way. <laughs> I don't know if that's why or not. So it's funny. On which there has never come a yoke. I mean, so they're trying to be holy. Verse 11, and they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with golden mice. What? Golden mice? Can I, I done been here long enough. I hate it when people bring me trinkets and ask me to pray a blessing over them. Where in the Bible did we get that idea from? I'm not praying over something. I'll pray over you, and then you can pray over whatever you want to pray over. Get some golden mice. Put it with the present. Shake it up real good. Golden mice. And the images of their tumors. Like, just sit around and be reminded of how bad you feel. Just rehearse your sickness over and over again. That sounds like some counseling advice or something. I'm trying to get you out of what you're in. You want to stay there, you go pay somebody for it. So they counseled them real good, built them a new cart. See, the Philistines were like America. They paid more attention to what the world was doing than they did to what God wanted them to do. In other words... What the world was doing was greater than what God wanted. Simple test to see if this applies to you. Did you spend more time last week on social media because you're more interested in what the world is doing? Or did you spend more time last week in Scripture because you're most interested in what God wants? That'll be it for today. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Listen, I'm not preaching at you today because God's convicting me of the same things. We cannot be more interested in what the world is doing than in what God wants us to do. And hear me, what you pay the most attention to is what you will care about the most. So if you will change what you pay the most attention to, hear me, what you pay the most attention to will change you. God had given specific instructions on how to carry that ark. He didn't say put it on a new cart. That's what the Philistines did. There were rings in that ark that two poles went through. And there was a specific tribe from the tribe of Levi, a specific family from the tribe of Levi. So not just one of the specific tribes of Israel, but a specific family of the tribe of Levi was supposed to carry that ark. What, when, how was all laid out. But write this down, number two, reverence was required. Reverence. 
Now listen, I'm not saying that you should be afraid of God. I got to take this thing off. I'm not saying that you should be afraid of God. That's not what I'm saying at all. I don't want my children to come help me. Somebody get up. Come here. <laughs> to die in this thing. Thought it was fall. My Jesus. <laughs> I'm not telling you that you should be afraid of God. Uh, but there are some times, and maybe this has never happened to you, there are some times when my son is about to do something. And I hate to throw him under the bus like this, but he ain't in here. He's about to, I've like seen him in the act. I specifically remember one time he was about to jump off something. And I came into the room and my man said, acting like he wasn't just about to ignorant. You know what I mean? <laughs> Why? Because he's afraid of me? No. Because his relationship with me is strong enough that he has a reverent fear for his father. But when he forgets that his father is always watching, then he begins to do things that he should have never done, and he begins to not do things that he should have always been doing. For us, when we begin to have reverence for the Father, once again, not only will we stop doing the things that we're not supposed to be doing, but we will start doing the things that were not just expected of us, but the Bible says we will exceed the expectations because Jesus told us that if you think that was impressive, if you'll get in me, I'll use you to do even greater works than these. But it requires reverence. It's not just going to happen. It's going to require reverence on our part. And we need to remember that sometimes the end does not justify the means. In other words, just because we can doesn't mean that we should. Paul wrote it this way. There are many things that are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. In other words, don't you ever confuse God allowing you to get away with something for God approving that you did it to begin with. When we don't do things God's way, hear me, it costs other people their lives, starting with us and going out from there. The Bible says in verse 7, the Lord's anger. What is anger? Anger in the original Hebrew, that word is aph, A-P-H. It didn't just mean like a feeling, an emotional irritation. That's not what it meant at all. It actually, it actually means the nostrils, the nose, the face, the wrath, the anger of God. Here's what it looks like. Some of y'all sensed it. <laughs> the nostrils of God, the, the, the nostrils that breathe the breath of Adam, the breath of life into Adam. In other words, what the Bible is saying right here is that when Azah was irreverent and inconsiderate of the presence of God, instead of being a pleasing aroma for the Father to be pleased with and for the Father to breathe in, Azah's actions were like a stench of offense in the face of God. When the father looked down, so seeing and knowing everything that he had done from Uzzah, for Uzzah, 
I put my presence in your house. You have heard these stories since the day you were born. You know better. And yet you stand there and stare into space during worship. You know better. And yet you barely just give and you call it tithing. You know better, and yet you rob from me. You know better, and yet you gather maybe one Sunday every three Sundays, and you call that faithfulness. The Lord is offended. I believe the Lord is offended by the stench of the church and the things that the church has called acceptable that the Word of God has not changed its mind on. And in order to see the presence and the glory of God, the way that we read that other people saw the presence and the glory of God, I believe that we need a revival of reverence in the house of God. We need to repent of our inconsideration and our insensitivity. We need to repent of our assumptions and come back to a place of reverence. The senses of the Father were insulted by the assumptions. Hear me. The senses of the Father were insulted by the assumptions of his people. I believe we live in a day and age where our Heavenly Father is only going to be insulted for so much longer. I believe we live in a day and an hour where the heavenly father, the holy of holies, is only going to sit and be insulted. He is only going to allow the church itself to trample underfoot the son of God again for so much longer until he says, enough, Gabriel, sound the horn. I'm going to get the ones who still have reverence. I'm going to get the ones who are still faithful. I'm going to get the ones who know how to serve. I'm going to get the ones who are willing to give. I'm going to get the ones who are fully surrendered. I'm going to get the ones who will worship me in more than just a service, but in spirit and in truth as their bodies are a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto me. Gabriel, mount up. Jesus, get on the horse. It's time for my babies to come back home. And everybody else be sitting in the middle of a church service. And about 30% of the church is going to be gone. And everybody else still going to be sitting there. You're the ones that weren't giving because they didn't understand what God gave. The ones that weren't serving because they thought that it was about them. The ones that weren't worshiping because they didn't understand that it was more than an act. It was about a lifestyle. I believe that reverence is required. The Bible says that the ark of the Lord went to the house of a man named Obed-Edom. And I believe it says that it sat in his house for about three months. And somebody came to David and said, David, that ark that you thought God was mad about, man, he is blessing the health into Obed-Edom's house. We need to get that thing back in the place that it's supposed to be. And so David went and got everybody. And this time, he didn't just do what he was supposed to do. He did it the way that he was supposed to do it. Can somebody come help me so everybody will think I'm almost done? The Bible says that 
the right family from the right tribe. They pick the ark up. And for nine miles, watch this, verse 13, when those who were carrying the ark, notice this thing ain't on a cart anymore. They're not letting an animal house the ark. You remember beforehand, they thought that the easy way was the best way. So instead of carrying the presence of God on their own, they decided to spend some extra money and let some oxen carry it and put it on a new ark because it would be easier. It would be more convenient. Maybe even, maybe even it would be more palatable to carry it this way. Maybe David thought as the pastor of the house of Israel, I, I don't want to offend anybody by telling them exactly what God said. So instead of doing exactly what God wanted me to do, because, because I don't want to offend anybody, we're going to do it this way. Not this time. David said, hey, you guys pick that thing up. And then the Bible says they took six steps. And David says, stop. And he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And then he said, go again. Six more steps. Stop. Sacrifice another bull and another fattened calf. Because David understood something that we don't understand. If we want to see God do something different, then we've got to start doing something different. And when you don't know what to do, you take six steps and you stop and you ask him if this is the right direction. You don't just keep running and ask him to bless it. You don't just keep going in the same direction and ask God to forgive it. You stop. And you embrace the sacrifice. In the Old Testament, it was a bull and a calf. In the New Testament, it's the only begotten Son of God. You stop and you remember the sacrifice. And if you have to stop every six steps for nine miles, I'm telling you, if you get to the right destination, then it will be worth the wait all the way. So they surrendered, they sacrificed, and then they praised. Verse 14, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. He just couldn't hold it in any longer. Verse 15, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place. Thank God I'm back where I'm supposed to be. You ever had that feeling? You've been drifting, you've been gone, you've been, you've been searching the wrong things, seeking the wrong things, you've been stuck in the wrong places, and then all of a sudden, you get back where you're supposed to be, and in a moment, God done what you couldn't do at miles for years, just lifts it all off of you like, oh, hallelujah, oh, this is where I was supposed to be. They put the Ark of the Covenant back in its place inside the tent that David had worked on and pitched for it, just for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. Number three, closing. We. And I'm not talking about my staff and me. We. We are carrying God's presence. I was 19 years old, 
And the Lord called me to ministry. He called me to Bible college. He filled me with his spirit. He redeemed me. He saved me. He set me free of some sick things that I don't have time to go into. And 19 years old, he told me, for one year, for one year, son, I need you to pursue my presence. I don't want you to date anybody. I don't want you to kiss anybody. I don't want you to touch anybody. For one year, I just want you to seek me. One year. That's not too much to ask. 19 years I've been serving myself. God says, for one year, I want the only person I want you to kiss is me. See, we flippantly throw this thing around like it's just no big deal. But what we don't understand is that in the scriptures, a kiss is a seal of a covenant. We think it's cute when a kid seals a covenant with another kid. Sometimes breaking the covenant that they were supposed to have with God. We think it's a game. And then we don't understand why it hurts so bad. When we try to break covenant at an age that we should have never even made covenant with someone that we weren't supposed to make it to. And a kiss in the scripture was not just the seal of a covenant, it was a sign of worship. The Bible says that when Elijah put the sacrifice on the altar, the fire of God came down and consumed the sacrifice, consumed the altar, and kissed the water, licked up the water, saying, this is a pleasing sacrifice. And God said, for one year, I want you to do this to me. And I started telling people that, and they looked at me like some of y'all are looking at me right now. This guy's nuts. No, no, no. No, no, no. Here, here's the problem. You pay more attention to what the world is doing than what God wants. Because you think what's normal is acceptable. And what's biblical is weird. Why? Because we've been saturated with Dagon culture. Just mixing God into what we're already doing and asking him to save it and bless it. And God said, for one year, if you'll do this the right way. So I did it for four months. <laughs> and for two years, I lived like I never heard the name of Jesus before. And at 21 years old, sitting with her broken to pieces over things that I had done, miserable over my lifestyle, I began the process of doing what God told me to do. And in February of 2008, I asked her to marry me, and we got engaged, which is, by the way, the most miserable and annoying season of anybody's life. I hated being engaged. Being engaged is annoying. It's like watching the Food Network. Like, it's like right there, but you can't have it. <laughs> Being married is awesome. Love being, hey, but listen to me, hear me. Being single is more anointed. Some of y'all missed it. You need to stop praying for a spouse and start praying to your Savior. He'll send you your spouse when you're ready. But if you're not willing to lay down your life for Jesus, it doesn't matter who he sends you. You're not going to lay your life down for anybody. In fact, all you're going to do is lean on somebody else the way you were supposed to lean on Jesus, and then you're going to blame them for all your bad habits. 
and then that covenant's going to break and you're going to enter into covenant with somebody else and blame them and break that one and blame them and break that one and it will be an evil cycle all the way to you stand in eternity and stand before Jesus and he goes all you had to do was lay down your life for me I wanted you to lay down your life for me and I would have given you all of this see we got engaged February 2008 I promise I'm done February 2008 I got married eight months later how long did God ask me one year 12 months I said I made it four months the first time I got engaged eight months later the day that we got engaged I said I'm not supposed to kiss you until we get married what hey if you can't have what you want <laughs> if I can't have what I want because I don't care about kissing that's all I'm saying care less she's like I want to kiss I, what's wrong with kissing nothing for you for me it's like a spark plug now I got this engine <laughs> eight months I'm so sorry <laughs> for eight months I didn't cut I didn't kiss her I didn't cuss at her I probably did <laughs> I cussed a few times, she didn't hear me. <laughs> for 40 days, for 40 days, I didn't touch her. I didn't kiss her for eight months, 40 days, I didn't touch her. And I stood at the altar with my pastor, and for years, the Lord told me this this week, for years, I thought that we met at the altar and we asked for the presence of God to meet us there. But, but that's not what happened. See, you don't go to the altar and ask God to meet you there. God doesn't meet you at altars. You are the altar. You don't meet the presence of God at the altar. You don't meet the presence of God at the altar. You carry the presence of God to the altar. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the presence of God was in a specific place. Come on. But in the New Testament, because Jesus said, it is finished, and the veil of the Holy of Holies tore from the top to the bottom, and the glory of God was released to anybody that would. Now I don't have to build altars. I am the altar. Now I don't have to beg God. I'm already walking with him and carrying his presence everywhere that I go. In the Old Testament, you built an altar. In the New Testament, you bring the presence to the altar. In the Old Testament, the altar was a specific place, and the presence was bound to that place. But in the New Testament, the Bible says it is a people that will house my presence. And wherever you go, I go with you. Whatever you're doing, I'm doing it with you. You are no longer bound to show up at a specific time in a specific area but you are bound to be reverent of the fact that you are carrying the presence of God everywhere you go so you don't get to come into a service and walk out the same because you carry the presence back out to everybody else that doesn't have it we're carrying God's presence and when you surrender and I'm going to pray 
when you surrender your life to him, he will fill you with the spirit and your presence will turn to his. Then you'll worship and you'll give and you'll serve and you'll share the way that God created you to. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you for your word that it will not return unto you void right now. Lord, thank you for the, the patience of your people today. God, help us to hear from heaven in this room. Lord, for the followers of Jesus, may we acknowledge the shortcuts and make adjustments. For the followers of Jesus, Lord, show us where we have been satisfied with insensitivity. God, show us where we have become comfortable with carrying your presence half-heartedly. God, for the followers of Jesus, help us to remember that we don't guide the cart of your presence. We are the ark of your presence. We are the representation of God in the New Testament. But right now, Lord, for those in the room that don't know you, that haven't surrendered their lives to you, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would blow through this place like the wind and that you would stir in the spirit of every single individual that needs to receive salvation today, that needs to commit or recommit their lives to you. If that's you and you're in this room or you're watching online, would you open your hands right where you are? As a sign of surrender, Lord, I'm no longer going to be satisfied with taking your glory for granted. I, I'm no longer going to be satisfied with half-heartedly seeking you. I surrender all right now. If that's you, I want to invite you to pray in three seconds. Church, would you pray with us today so that they know that they are not alone? Come on, let's pray this together. Heavenly Father, forgive me for taking your presence for granted. I believe that you've called me to be set apart and holy, but I couldn't do it on my own. So you sent Jesus to die on the cross, to shed his blood, to pay for my sin, and he was raised from the dead so I could be born again. I could be reverent of your presence and carry it everywhere that I go. So take my life and make it yours. Fill me with your spirit. May I follow you with all of my heart from this day forward. I surrender all right now in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Now give God glory like you're the carrier of his presence today.